want to ask you to take a moment to think about your childhood. What did you just think about when I said that? I bet a lot of you were thinking about your home, the place you lived, the bed you slept in. Homes are the centerpiece of our lives. They're also where disasters often strike. There has been a huge earthquake, magnitude 7.0, just off the coast of Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Extraordinary scenes on a vacation beach. Hundreds trying to escape. Officials say they were trapped when their building pancaked on top of them. And now in Mexico City, the frantic effort to try to rescue those that are still... Worldwide, natural disasters have claimed 1.3 million lives in the last 25 years. Earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, all of them are blind to geography, but they mostly target one group, the poor. And specifically, poor people in substandard houses. Roofs blow off, walls crumble, the structures collapse. That's how natural disasters can kill scores of people and cause billions of dollars in damage in a matter of hours or even seconds. But we here at the World Bank think that many of these are actually preventable. Now, of course, that may sound crazy. I don't mean we can change the path of a hurricane or stop an earthquake. But we can do the next best thing. We can make these events much more survivable for people unlucky enough to get caught in one. How? Through resilient housing. A concept that many think can change the world. And the subject of this podcast from the World Bank. Instead of just building back better after a disaster, we're going to be talking about building better before the disaster occurs. I'm your host, David Cavell, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the people who are working to save lives through resilient housing, some of the major challenges they have to overcome, and explain why we're so excited about this effort. Uh, good afternoon. Um, thank you all for being with us here today. That's Sema Waba one of the directors of the World Bank, speaking at a conference in Argentina about the housing situation in the developing world. The large share of the housing stock in the developing world tends to be uh, lacking in terms of resilience. And because housing for uh, the poorest households, and when I say poorest households, I'm here talking about, you know, for the large uh, share of the countries we're working with, so anywhere between 20 to 30 to 70 percent of the income distribution, housing will be the uh, most important, if not the only asset that uh, they have. So comes a disaster, an earthquake, a tsunami, or what have you, and that asset is gone, it really sets uh, their livelihoods at risk. So, See, Samek believes that a focus on creating resilient housing offers a wide variety of potential benefits and solutions. The investment to make housing more resilient makes eminent sense because it secures the just about the only asset that poor people have. It reduces the probability of the loss of such asset. It also uh, helps uh, address the housing challenge in these countries. I mean, the housing challenge is not often one just of a deficit of existing housing unit, but also a qualitative deficit that has to be also overcome. Given these potential benefits, resilient housing has become a priority for a lot of us at the World Bank. 
It's part of our focus on creating sustainable communities, helping countries and residents around the world grapple with a changing climate and everything that comes with it, rising sea levels and stronger, more frequent storms. We'll meet some of the people working on these efforts and hear their stories. But before we do anything else, I'd now like to introduce you to someone who helped develop and launch this program, Luis Trevenio. My name is Luis Trevenio, and I'm Urban Development Specialist at the World Bank. Seeing the heartbreaking and devastating effects of natural disasters is actually what originally brought Luis's attention to the problem of resilient housing. Getting to know how easy it is for families to lose everything they have was what motivated me to start exploring this area. But also, it was not only the, the history of past events that we read in the books or in the newspapers. It was the fear that this could happen in a country like Peru, where all my family and friends live. So I thought we should try to do something so that they, these uh, friends and family that we all have can be safe if an earthquake takes place, for example, in the next, the next years. And why did Luis choose to start the global program for resilient housing? Because we think we can do better. We think that we have uh, already great efforts on areas such as housing reconstruction and housing finance, but that we still can deliver more peace of mind and security to families in the developing world if we help them make their homes safer. Building sustainable communities by making homes safer and stronger sounds well and good, but how exactly does that work? What do you need to do? What do you need to know? And is this something anybody can do? To find out, I sat down with Elizabeth Hausler, the founder and CEO of Build Change, and asked her about our organization. Build Change is a nonprofit social enterprise that works with people in Asia and Latin America and the Caribbean to design and build and finance houses and schools so they don't collapse in earthquakes and hurricanes. We spent our first 10 years following disasters, building back better after disasters in Indonesia and in China, mm-hmm. in Haiti, in the Philippines, in Nepal. But wouldn't it be better if we could prevent the disaster from happening in the first place? Well, can you tell us a little bit more about what, what does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah, sure. Uh, It's fairly straightforward to strengthen a building, and we've done it now in Haiti, Indonesia, Philippines, Colombia, Guatemala, and Nepal. Uh, Mostly these are masonry structures. With masonry structures, you need enough good solid wall that's tied together. So we recommend reinforced concrete columns and beams if they don't exist. We recommend plaster. For hurricanes, we recommend tying down the roof so it doesn't blow off. And so there are some very basic things that can be done to make these buildings safe. The construction is done all by local builders, uh, local construction professionals. So we're not only strengthening buildings, but we're also creating job opportunities and economic development opportunities for local folks. Did you hear Elizabeth's last point? That's especially of interest to us at the World Bank. Building resilient houses turns out to not just improve safety and mitigate the risk of loss, but it can also be a source of local economic development, strengthening local businesses as well as walls. Not to mention, a lot of people like where they live. They don't want to move. They don't want to pack up their whole lives, head off to some new housing development, and leave behind the only neighborhood and friends and family they've ever known just to get into a potentially safer home. And for these people, Luis has good news. Not everybody needs to, to move. No, they, of course, there are homes in areas that need to be resettled, but that's generally a, mi- a minority. Uh, 
Uh, most people live in areas where risk can be mitigated. So most live in homes that are unsafe today, but could be safe tomorrow if we make some minor investments. It, that's not to say that build back efforts are not necessary. They will always be necessary. But I think uh, if we build better before, we are going to uh, minimize not only the massive uh, amounts of money that, we need, that are needed for reconstruction, but we'd also uh, minimize the life losses. So think about it. Compared to the alternatives, improving and strengthening existing housing stock to be resilient is often much cheaper, safer, and more appealing to families and communities. Just listen to Brett Gwinner, head of housing finance at the International Finance Corporation, who spoke at the Global Program for Resilient Housing's launch event. This program is, is, is certainly welcome. I'd love to not be in the rebuilding business anymore, and having tried to do that in Haiti. It's, it's tough, and it's expensive, and it's obviously, in terms of human cost, it's the worst way to do anything. All right. So hopefully at this point, we have you convinced that resilient housing is a good idea. But I know what you're thinking. Resilient housing can only be effective if it's built before a major disaster. Right, Dave? So how do you go about finding which houses to improve, which houses are going to collapse before it's too late? Good question. Glad you asked it. To learn more about this, I sat down with Sarah Antos, a data scientist here at the World Bank who's helping to run this program. So, Sarah... When we talk about the importance of this program to communities and to families, is there a specific example that stands out to you? Yeah. So much of this work was inspired by a school that collapsed in Mexico in 2017. And um, the street view imagery of that school pre-earthquake clearly showed that it was a soft story. From just Google Street View, you could see that there were all these windows on the first story, and it was a very top-heavy building. It was maybe seven stories. And during the earthquake, it collapsed and, and killed a lot of kids. When I saw that example and how just from simply one image, how obvious it was that that was a high-risk structure, and I thought, you know, hey, maybe there's a way we can leverage imagery to better identify vulnerable structures. Earlier, I heard you mention that you only need three things to identify substandard housing. A car-mounted camera, a drone, and a laptop. I don't believe you. How is that possible? <laughs> so essentially what our approach is, is we're going to image the neighborhood as much as possible. So image it from the sky as well as image it from the, from the ground and through the street. Traditionally, what people have done to get a sense of um, the housing stock in a, in a city is to go out with clipboards. And that means hiring you know, students or trying to train people within a few weeks giving them clipboards or even tablets to go out and walk the streets and fill out a lot of information standing in front of houses. Um, this is not only time-consuming, it's expensive. Um, it also introduces a lot of human error. You know, somebody is standing there, maybe they're not following the directions properly, they get the wrong GPS location. There's just a lot of room for um, for error there. And so... And you're talking about people literally walking around neighborhoods... Oh, yeah. All ...day after day, hour after hour. Exactly. No, this takes months. We're being much more precise, and we're trying to extract information at the household unit levels. And why is that such a big deal? I mean, in other words, why why is this machine learning, as you call it, using this new technology, the drone, the, the car-mounted camera that we can think of maybe as a street-view-type 
type camera. Is that right? Exactly. Street okay. View. Similar to Google Street View. Got it. So why is that such a big deal? Well, to try to find and, and gather all this information is a huge undertaking. So the idea is that instead of sending these people out in droves, we go with cameras. I mean, you said that that process could take months. What's the time frame that we're talking about with the machine learning and driving around with the car-mounted camera? Yeah, so it's much faster. So we have piloted this in three different places, and each time it was only a week-long mission. Um, and we were able to do, for example, in St. Lucia, we did three different cities, um, and we did it all in a week. Now let's hear about other organizations embracing the concept of resilient housing. The World Bank is far from the only group that's interested in this kind of program. Some of the world's biggest or best-known organizations are involved as well. Take Habitat for Humanity, for example. You've probably heard of them. You've seen them on the news. You know they do great work building new homes. But let's talk to one of their vice presidents about their interest in a resilient housing program. Uh, All right. Can you start by telling me your name and your title? Sure. Patrick Kelly, and I work with Habitat for Humanity International. I am our vice president of the Terwilliger Center for Innovation and Shelter. Habitat for Humanity does have a home building program. In fact, I think we're most known for constructing homes. Um, One of the limitations of that is that we believe it has scale limitations. It's an important component, but it it does lack the scale to reach the 1.6 billion people in need of a better shelter. So Patrick, how does the Global Program for Resilient Housing fit into that work? So we're excited about it for a number of reasons. We do think that there is a huge role for the public sector in particular to play. And this initiative, I hope, is going to bring a lot of attention um, to the issue of resilient building. But where does the rubber really meet the road here? How do governments take this data and use it to help strengthen homes before it's too late? Almost every country faces some sort of risk from natural disaster, right? From flooding in South Asia to hurricanes in the Caribbean to earthquakes in East Asia and South America. Let's hear from one leader in government who's already working to implement a resilient housing program in his country of Colombia. My name is Carlos Felipe Reyes, and I'm the Housing Policy Director at the Ministry of Housing in Colombia. Well, thank you very much for traveling here and being here today. Thank you so much. Uh, My question for you is, so as you said, you're now in charge of uh, designing housing policy for Colombia. Tell us what you're doing to work on this issue, and will resilient housing be a part of that strategy? Yes, resiliency is going to be a key part of the new set of policies that's going to be brought by our new administration. Our housing policy goals are not just to provide new housing, which we will do, but a key concept behind our our new policies is to intervene the existing urban form and generate incentives for improvements that increase resiliency. Um, We hope to take advantage of retrofitting experiences and all the support we can get from entities such as the World Bank. So with the group that started its works today, we hope to have a great conversation in the next few months and years. But at the end of the day, this is really just about saving lives. One house, one village, one region at a time, before it's too late. That's why this matters. That's why we're doing this. 
We'd like to wrap up this introduction to resilient housing by sharing an example of the remarkable impact that retrofitting can have on people's lives. Here's Sarah and Luis again to tell you about it. The Reloso family in the Philippines, who hid in their bathroom while their flimsy home, and in fact, their whole neighborhood, came down around them during a typhoon in 2013. They survived, but 4,000 others nearby were killed. Hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. The next year, the Relosos decided to rebuild and retrofit. They decided to build a disaster-resilient house. They received training and coaching from Build Change. Just one year later, a similar typhoon hit. But this time, their family rode out the storm, safe and sound, in their retrofitted home, along with 17 of their neighbors who took shelter with them. And that's our measure of success. We think it should be the World Bank's measure of success. How many lives we saved. How many houses we build back better after the next disaster. And how many houses we build better before the disaster. Homes that don't need to be rebuilt because they are resilient enough to survive. For the Rolosos, that's how one year turned tragedy into triumph. So there you have it. That starts to give you a sense of why resilient housing can make such an enormous impact in communities around the world. To learn more about what we're up to and the possibilities of resilient cities, check out the Sustainable Cities video blogs on the World Bank website and follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to that content and more in the notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was made by the World Bank's Global Program for Resilient Housing with support from the GFDRR, Global Facility for Disaster Risk Reduction. It was produced by Sarah Antos, Luis Trevenio, Jackson Bierfeldt, and me, David Cavell. Sound designed by Jackson Bierfeldt of Bierfeldt Audio, LLC. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>